Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of I've Never Had an Original Thought with me, Becky Lee. Now today's episode is a little bit different. It is dedicated to anyone who, like myself, often finds themselves either existentially or otherwise just thinking, what on earth am I doing? Am I in the right place? Am I making the right decisions? Uh, I'd say this is mainly in the realm of career, uh, but I hope to answer some of those questions that you maybe have today because my guest is the amazing Andrew Maddox who I am lucky to say is a colleague of mine. Now although Andrew's background is in physics and he actually did a master's in philosophy at both the University of Cambridge. I know him because I work with him. He's the COO of Comey, but didn't always start that way. Um, he has a history in banking and then in startups. So he was quite early in the Uber days, which again, very interesting, very exciting, all stuff that we touch on on the podcast. So yeah, without further ado, please listen to Andrew and all of his infinite wisdom and stick around for the end because it's a bit of a treat, uh, which I've been given permission to post. So yeah, please rate and review it five stars and subscribe and let me know if these are the types of episodes that you prefer because I really enjoyed doing this one. Also, I am very sorry about the audio in the beginning because we filmed in the office and someone was playing music and I thought that the microphone wouldn't pick it up, but it does. But this only happens for a short period of time. Uh, So yeah, sorry again. Okay, enjoy the episode. Bye. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of I've Never Had an Original Thought. This week I am joined by Andrew Maddox. Hello. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So, for those that don't know you, why don't you introduce yourself? Oh, it'll be my pleasure. So, my name is Andrew. I'm the Head of Operations here at Comey. I have the great pleasure of working alongside Becky. And I think, you know, we talk a lot about bringing yourself to work and being quite an authentic place to work. So, I'm going to allow Becky to validate how well I've done that by maybe telling a little bit about me that you've picked up from the office. Okay, Andrew is, I would say formidable, but in the best way, incredibly intelligent, emotionally and intellectually, loves everything, musical theatre, favourite musicals are Come From Away and Les Mis, probably. Very true. Um, and will sing any Lumis song with you at any point all, that you wanted. All very true. All more true than this formidable intelligence stuff. Oh yeah, and can always be found with a cup of tea in 
has happened. Now we got it. Like literally always. <laughs> With two sugars or, or two little sweeteners. See, there you go. My, my full authentic self. Exactly. Uh, okay, so the first question that I ask everyone is who or what is maybe one idea, experience or person that you've come across that's changed the way that you see the world? It's a great question. So I think I think the most interesting change for me in the last couple of years or indeed the sort of journey I've gone on through my life and career is to realise how little the theoretical and cognitive aspects of life matter compared to the practical aspects and that sounds very sort of highfalutin. What I mean by that is through school and university and even early in my career I was very cognitive, studied physics, studied philosophy, uh, I did competitive debating, everything for me was very much about ideas with this idea that if you had the right idea or the best idea or the most well-structured way of thinking then you would be you know, tapping into some sort of universal truth. And you see that sort of with this debates in our politics and debates in our ways of working. It's all about the ideas and what is true. And what I've realized is it doesn't really matter. Almost always the implementation of an idea matters a lot more than the quality of the idea itself. And you see it with businesses, two or three businesses trying to do similar things, and the one that works is the one that just did it better. And you see it in our pandemic response, lots of different governments had different theories and ideas, and really what it came down to at the end of the day is often which country or which group of people just executed the plan best. Um, And so I think for me that's a bit of a sad revelation because obviously I spent a lot of my time trying to be smart because we're told being smart, pass your tests, move on in your career. But at the same time, it's also quite liberating because what it means is that it doesn't matter if you're the smartest person in the world. What matters is can you just do the thing that's required of you the best, uh, whether you're a person or a company or whatever else. And I think if we were spending more time collectively thinking about quality of execution rather than the thoughts that divide us, whether they're political or whatever else, we would probably get much better outcomes with also much less grief. So I think that switch from being very cognitively concerned to just being worried about like getting shit done effectively is probably my biggest sort of growth in the last mm. 10 years. And has this been kept to the professional realm for you or do you apply this in your personal life? I think, I think it's, it's true both ways around, right? You know, take a silly example. I just bought a house and I think V1 Andrew or earlier Andrew would have really tried to optimise that by thinking about, you know, how do I quantify area? How do I create a universe of potential houses and rank them based on price and quality and whatever else? And actually none of that would have really mattered compared to just like, executing quickly. If I had done my original thing, I would probably have ended up missing the period in which interest rates were acceptable or something would have happened in the market. So yes, it's very small, but actually much more life satisfaction came out of just like buying a house, making it nice, doing that quickly. Um, And I certainly apply it in work, to your point. It doesn't really matter a lot of the time whether a project is incredibly well conceived. You will learn a lot more and you will probably be more effective if you just crack on, do it the best you can, think it through well, engage the right stakeholders, all of these more boring practical skills than if you wrote a 20-page analysis of how to perfectly optimise some sort of initiative. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's probably my biggest growth. I'll take it in this example of the pandemic. There was a you know, a huge number of records were lost because we were using spreadsheets because the civil service didn't have the skills to just do it in SQL. Now... 
we can spend all day talking about the theories of lockdown and how do we communicate effectively with the public and whether masks work or not. But really just like, we probably would have done better to just have people who knew how to use SQL than all of these ideas about what is the optimal strategy in theory. Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, I, I brought you on mainly, well, for, for many reasons, but one of the things that I really wanted to talk about because you've guided me very well in this is, you know, those so-called lost years of people, I'm sure you experienced it yourself, coming out of university um, and just feeling completely lost, completely like, I don't know what to do with my life. Um, how did you overcome this? And maybe what advice could you give to people that are in that position? Well, let's start with the, the, the secondary aspect. Mm. I think the more general principle is that it's completely normal because what you are being prepared for through the educational system suddenly ends. You know, you go through school and every single year and indeed every single term, you progress in some way. And at the end of every year, you get sort of a badge that says how well you did in that previous step. And then you go to university, the process continues, you become more specialized, and you actually see the end destination as a graduation or master's potentially. And then suddenly it ends. And suddenly you no longer have a ladder. And everything you've been habituated to Rather than sort of reaching the end of that ladder and being told, congratulations, you've made it, you reach the end of the ladder and you get told, sod off now, figure it out. Mm -hmm. So I think it's very, very normal and natural, particularly for high achievers who have always done very well on that ladder, to find the lack of a ladder hugely dislocating. And I think the first piece of advice, therefore, is just to accept it. It's completely normal. Don't chase the return of the ladder. You see it with people who go into grad schemes as the next step. They go, I've got to find a grad scheme and then I've got to get promoted and I've got to become a AVP within two years or I've failed. There's that very fake replication of the academic ladder. And certainly I made that mistake. I went to a grad scheme because it was the next step. It was the thing that you did. If you went to Oxbridge, you go to banking and then you get on a grad scheme and then you get promoted and you try and get promoted quickly. Mm. But it's not really a particularly self-created form of life. You spend your time more chasing artificial affirmation than trying to figure out if you like it. And then what do you do? You spend the next 40 years of your life going up rungs on a corporate ladder just to replicate the path that you've known before. So I think advice, accept it. It's normal. Um, And start to understand that the success in adult life will come from a very different mode of thinking and a mode of working. And learning that skill set is meant to be hard and that's okay yeah and what about the people that you know maybe are listening and have gone on that traditional grad scheme route and maybe just feel completely trapped well I think it's very normal because you get to 21, 22 and you're the top you're the oldest you're the most experienced people look up to you and then suddenly you're the bottom and you're like well now I actually don't know anything and everyone else is 20 years older than me and I don't know if I want to be a lawyer, banker, consultant, who else does grad schemes, civil service pastry, whatever, you've gone onto this pathway and you're like, I don't know if I want to do this now, but then you get to like one, two years and you're like, well, I don't know what else I would do and now I'm kind of pigeonholed. Mm. And the answer is, of course, you've got a 40-year career, Mm -hmm. but I think part of the the two steps that you want to go through is one is understanding that progression in your career will mostly come as a trailing indicator of personal growth. What do you mean by that? So it will come after, sorry, it's a pretentious way of saying afterwards. It will come after you've grown in your skill set. 
Okay. And so if you focus on growth and learning and being effective, you'll almost always find opportunities to progress. And it won't necessarily be up the same ladder that you're on. Mm. The second, of course, is to think, just to recognize that the timeline mm. is not six to 12 months, which is all you've been habituated to do, six, 12 yeah. months, six, 12 months. And there's this idea that like, you know, the best years of my life are uni, they're be amazing. They have to be amazing because after this, it won't be. And I think for a lot of people, that's just not true. Like I certainly didn't find that university was the best years of my life. And so I think if you give yourself this attitude of, I'm going to just learn and develop, become better at whatever it is I'm doing in front of me right now, and you give yourself time and you recognize it's okay that it takes a little bit longer than it did when you're at university, you will find when you look back, you know, well, I don't know what I worried about. You know, if you become a great communicator and you become a reliable worker and you become, a, you know, someone with a good theoretical understanding of, of business or academia or, um, you know, the, the civil service, to use the example from before, opportunities to progress in your career will arise and certainly you'll be able to find them. That feeling of being trapped, I think, is the corollary of that feeling of being lost, which is like, this is what I'm doing and I don't know what else I would do, ergo I am trapped. But in reality, you're not. And it will become apparent, I think, for most people after a little bit of time. Yeah. Say someone is, you know, learning pretty valuable skills in a job, but is in a position where they really dislike their job, are fundamentally unhappy. Do you think that suffering through their job is inherently valuable because they might be learning skills so that later on they could be at a place they want to be? Or do you think they could exit and learn their skills another way? I mean, I think it's uh, I think it's very case-specific. And I think I'll fall back on the old philosophy training of when you get asked a question, tell them the question is wrong. <laughs> I think the question about whether something is inherently valuable depends so much on what it is that the individual values. And I think whether suffering is inherently valuable will therefore depend upon what the values of the individual are. Yeah. I think the one thing I would say is it's okay for stuff not to be easy. Um, you're not meant to find everything easy. And indeed, if you want to go far, you're almost certainly going to go through periods of struggle. And that struggle may be, I just don't know how to do my job. It may be uh, the hours are really long. It may be, uh, you know, the the... the, the personal stretch in learning these skills makes you feel very insecure. All of those things I think are quite normal and natural. And then of course the question about whether you should go through those things, just a trade-off between how much you're suffering now and the benefit you might get in the future. I think the one thing I would differentiate between is there are places where struggle, and I think we use that as a synonym for for suffering in your question, Mm. are valuable. And not whether they're the correct amount of value depends upon you. But there are places where I think we should draw a line and say that's that suffering's not okay. Yeah. And that would be things like bullying, being in a toxic workplace, and in a place where your mental health is truly suffering. And again, there will be times when your mental health struggles because you're stressed and you're tired. But I'm talking about when you get to that point where you're like, I am going to burn out. I just hate this. And when you hit those moments, I would probably encourage people to say that it's not, that no amount of future payoff really justifies those things. And mostly when I've seen people get stuck in those moments is when they're going, I feel trapped. And 
I'm being bullied at work and I feel horrible, but there's nowhere I can go. Those are the moments where it's most helpful to step back and figure out, well, if I got fired tomorrow, what would I do? And then just do that. You know, if I had to do something, what would I do? It might not be perfect. Um, or go to someone outside that situation and say, can you help me? I need to get out. Um, I certainly got very close to that point a couple of times. And I certainly got very close to that feeling of like, I'm so trapped. I can't do anything else. I don't have any money. I can't live without money. My family don't have money. And you, you get in this horrible yeah. negative spiral of feeling like yeah. I just can't leave. And when you step back and think, well, what would I do if I had to? And you start proactively solving the problem. Generally speaking, you find that you actually could leave. Yeah. And it's okay if you don't get the exact same money or the exact same prestige. Most things, even if it's a lateral move or a backwards move, that put you on the right path are worthwhile. Yeah. So I want to situate this in context a bit. Obviously, you spent the early stages of your career as your leader to in, in banking um, and that sort of work environment. And obviously, with you're saying with hindsight, is that a path that you would recommend to, to graduates? I think, you know, the, 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 there's real advantages to being in a highly demanding quantitative environment. And, and to be clear, I started off in capital markets for okay. a year. Can you go, just let anyone that's listening doesn't know what capital markets is? Yeah, so, so um, generally speaking, banking is a very broad term. Yeah. And so when people think about banking, they mostly think about investment banking, yeah. which is doing deals. Okay. Supporting clients and doing deals. Yeah. Now, alongside the investment bank, there is this trading function um, that sometimes involves proprietary trading, sometimes involves flow trading, which is trading on behalf of others, um, sometimes involves research, so quantitative research into investments or into market trends. And that capital markets world is where I started. So I started doing... Um, a research role, so researching equity investments based upon this bank's proprietary data set, and then moving into more quantitative roles, spent some time on a flow FX desk where we basically sat in a big open room and you know people would phone us up through our clients and say they want to you know exchange a large number of euros for a large number of dollars and we would shout across to the sales traders and they would give us a price, we'd quote it back. It was a very simple job, a job mm. that could have easily been automated and probably has been. But that's why I began this kind of like slightly diverse world. And I was out of my depth enormously. Never studied economics, didn't know what the hell was going on. And just hated it, frankly. You know, we started very early in the morning. Junior people got treated pretty badly. The work's pretty boring. And didn't have a great time. But the skills you learn in terms of personal efficiency and effectiveness, communication and a bunch of other stuff are helpful. And then I moved across into these internal strategy roles and that was definitely better because the strategy role is more of a I guess fit for someone who is a bit more cognitive versus someone who's executing day to day but even then it's not you know, strategy sounds sexy that it is mostly you're doing board decks to update investors on uh, you know or sorry board decks to update the board on you know the one year plan or you're doing a deep dive on should we be doing more in Norway or whatever random topic it is of the day mm-hmm. And whilst you learn some great skills, which again comes back to like formal communication and some of the more quantitative reasoning and using Excel and stuff that's quite helpful, it's not very exciting. So I want to come back to your question because I'm, I'm, I'm going a bit deep into what I did in my first few years. Would I recommend it? And I think the answer is I would recommend 
people viewing the early stage of their career as being about learning still. Okay. Um, I think there's this really negative stereotype of like the early 20s entrepreneur that becomes Mark Zuckerberg. And if you are not Mark Zuckerberg or Forbes 30 under 30 or bring your own company or something, you're a failure. Or if you're not, I don't know, a sports star or a you know, yeah. cabinet secretary or whatever it is, then you know you've not achieved it yet. But I think actually it's very negative because mostly if you get pushed too far too soon, you have huge gaps in your fundamentals that will destroy you later. Like? Like people can't write effective emails. It sounds okay. really trite, but the number of bad emails that lead to the inability to have a sales conversation with manager stakeholders or whatever else will be hugely limited. Or you can't use Excel and you can't make a model. You can't understand a financial model, read a P&L. Like things that aren't very difficult, but if you skip them, you're very limited. Mm. So in my first few years, did part of my CFA, um, spent three years in the strategy team at State Street, then another couple of years between Barclays and HSBC, and I filled in a bunch of these fundamentals in terms of making PowerPoints and make, using Excel documents and sending effective emails and understanding some basic concepts in economics. And those really helped me in my future career. They really helped me. So I think my advice isn't so much you should go into banking or you shouldn't go into banking, but you should certainly consider that the first five to ten years of your career should be about learning mm. and it's okay if they're quite diverse and you do lots of different things it's okay if you haven't jumped up to being a head of whatever at the age of 25 and you're doing so well because a lot of those people who get ahead early end up in a sort of false lead and they get overtaken by people who have the fundamentals to mm. actually excel later on mm. yeah that's that's understand and <laughs> um, so what about, you know, obviously you started off in quite big corporations, massive companies, and then had quite a career move, moving into the startup space, which obviously operates quite, well, almost extremely differently. How did you find navigating a completely new workspace? And again, what would you say to someone that maybe is looking to make a similar transition? I loved it, is the answer. So I think, I, you know, the big corporates, and I imagine this applies to any large organization, so I don't just mean like big mm. banks, but I mean mm. you know, the NHS and the civil service, large companies are very static. Mm. And what it tends to mean is there are ways of working which are embedded, there are tools and systems which have a pretty high cost of change, and there's a lot of institutional behaviors that are um, essentially now embedded. So... Your ability to progress rapidly is limited, but also your ability to just do anything differently is quite limited. And so when I moved across to Uber, um, relatively early, though obviously not in the first couple of years, but you know, to launch in the UK and to indeed the great city of Liverpool, <laughs> the culture was very different. It was just like, go and do shit. And as long as it's fairly defensible, that's great. And if you mess up, we'll do a post-mortem and we'll figure out why we messed up and we'll share that learning and people won't mess up in that way again. Yeah. And the systems and the tools, it was like moving forward in time 30 years. You know, HSBC, if I wanted to get some data, I had to like email the data team and meet them face to face and explain to them why I wanted this data and then they would go and write the sequel and give it to me. It could take three, four weeks. Three to four weeks? Because it would be like, oh yeah, we can meet next week and we'll get back to you and we've got a backlog. And... Whereas at Uber, the expectation was just that you would learn SQL. And then you do your own queries, and the data was there. So yeah. you could figure out anything you wanted to figure out within however long it took to write the query. So the quality of tools, and therefore the expectation for the quality of decision making was much higher. 
that was hugely empowering because it meant people were making smarter decisions, quicker decisions, but there was also that empowerment. And the culture was you get ahead by solving a problem and helping other people solve that problem. So again, at HSBC, there was a terrible habit of people saying, I can't do this because this is a problem someone else needs to deal with it. Okay. So deferring and defending their work. Whereas at Uber, people kind of knew that if they were the guy who solved problem X, that would get recognized and that's where the progression would come from. Because the culture was much more dynamic or more accurately, the organization itself was more dynamic, you could get ahead on the basis of being the guy that solved the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so for a number of reasons, the sort of quality of the systems and the quality of the people and the energy of the org and the dynamism, moving from HSBC and banking more generally to Uber was a, was a huge breath of fresh air. And why did you knew wanted to go into a startup specifically? You could have joined a mid-level company. Yeah. I think the answer is a lot of people, when they are trying to figure out what to do next, mm-hmm. try to solve the problem at the theoretical stage. Okay. Back to my point about theory yeah. versus practice. Yeah. Where do you want to work? Are you asking me? Yeah, I'm asking you. I don't know. Well, how would you know? Because have you, you've not spoken to 100 companies yeah. and tried 100 things. The best way to solve the problem is to solve it empirically, not theoretically. So when I was like, I don't want to be in banking anymore, I wrote a massive strategy tree. You know, do I want to be in the private sector, the public sector, the tertiary sector, or where academia? Was this, where, where did you learn the skill? Like, what brought you to... Strategy. Oh, okay, and okay. Reviews, okay. Right? And so I did this, and I sort of said, well, the first layer is this. And then I thought, well, within the private sector, would I want to go into tech, into other banks... Oh, I think I said private sector banking or non-banking. And then within non-banking, I said like tech or big company or whatever. And then within the public sector, I said, you know, like, do I want to go civil service fast stream or foreign office? Or, and then I think within the private sector, the, sort of the, the, the tertiary sector, I said, do I want to go work at a charity? And then I said, do I want to do an MBA or a PhD? And mm. I had this really long list of all the things I could possibly mm. do. And I started crossing things out and saying, well, I actually don't want to work at a charity because I've done strategy work for charity pro bono and it was very frustrating. And I don't want to do an MBA. It's very expensive. I don't think it's right, etc., etc. Yeah. And the things I was left with, left with, I just explored them. Yeah. I just found... In ways? I found people and friends of friends from my Cambridge network who were at companies and spoke to them. I had a call with the British ambassador to Slovenia or something. Did really you random. Yeah. By just reaching out and having chats, right? Yeah. And, you know... Uh, and then I applied for a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the critical thing. I just applied for a bunch of things. Yeah. And I didn't get interviews quite a lot. And one of the first companies that came back to me was Uber. Not the first, but one of the first. And I'd applied to Uber for a strategy role yep. as a sideways transition. So can I interject? What stage was Uber at when you heard back? So it was 2015. Okay. So big, multinational, very well funded, but it was still in this hyper growth phase. It launched so in London. Not but too many cars about. So lo- big cities like London were yeah. pretty mature by then. Okay. But I think Liverpool had only just been launched. Okay. Smaller cities hadn't. Yeah. So Manchester, Liverpool, Birmingham had been launched. Yeah. Some of the smaller ones hadn't been. Liverpool, which is where I ended up, only had a couple of dozen cars okay. at this stage. So launch and expansion was still a focus. Yeah. Um, but we had billions in the bank. Okay. Anyway. I applied, and, and they, I wrote a cover letter that was basically like, I love your company, it's very exciting, and there is this really interesting confluence of these major trends in the gig economy, digitization of work, etc., etc., and they wrote back and said, look, you don't fit the bill for the strategy role, too experienced, too many years in, but actually we are looking to hire highly quantitative people to be... Yeah. 
ops managers, which is the term, and would you have a chat about that? I said, of course, I'd have a chat about that. Yeah. And I had a few chats. I spoke to Palantir, um, I spoke to Foreign Ambassador for wherever, I spoke to Amazon. And after doing that, then I narrowed down to what I wanted to try. Yeah. But I think this um, temptation to try and figure out what do I want to do with my life, where people sit there and they go, I don't know, mistakes a empirical problem for a theoretical one. The best solution to that problem, as I have experienced, is just get out there, have a really broad bunch of conversations, and see what clicks, see what excites you, mm-hmm. and then you can make a choice. Mm-hmm. Um, I, obviously, you were in quite a privileged position. You know, you had a master's, you had two degrees from Cambridge. Obviously, had a very impressive early career background. How else can other people set themselves up into a position where you know they have a chance at getting the jobs that they want? Yeah, sure. I think. The degree thing, to address it first, matters a lot less than people think. Mm. Um, I actually do think it helps to get your first job. Yeah. Um, but once you're a couple of years into your career, you know, going on to Cambridge is, is great, but if you've not really done anything for the last couple of years, yeah, it doesn't really cut the mustard. So I think I would say to people who don't have an amazing degree that it matters less over time, which I probably think is quite encouraging. I think the couple things I'd say about like how do you do that transition one is there's a bunch of shit you just need to learn about how to write a CV and how to write a cover letter and how to interview well that most people don't bother and those are skills they can be taught and they're incredibly valuable but I'd rather know how to write a CV and know how to interview than have a degree from Cambridge because mm-hmm. the number of people who interview badly is unbelievably shocking well you you know you've, you've done recruitment for this company what would you say is there like a percentage of what you've been not impressed by I mean, I'm not sure about the percentage, but things that are honestly basic, mm. like being able to articulate a little bit about the company you're applying to. Just doing your research, things like that. Doing very basic research. A lot of candidates fail at. And I've seen CVs that turn up that are like four pages of bullet points. I mean, I have one guy in, in, when I was in banking who said, all my life I have dreamed of being an investment baker. <gasps> and I emailed the guy, I was like, look, we're not taking you but I just need to tell you that you've got this really obvious typo in the first line of your cover letter because it was like going to kill his interview so like the first thing is like just get your damn fundamentals right like learn how to write a CV learn how to write a cover letter learn how to interview practice for God's sake I had a friend when we were at university who was really struggling to get a job and wouldn't practice interviewing because it was embarrassing. Mm. And then it's like, well, of course you're going to struggle. This is a skill. It's important. So step number one, yes, I had the fortune of, of having a CV that opened doors a little bit with the Cambridge and whatever. Yeah. But I went to State Street. State Street's not a particularly prestigious bank. No one's like, oh my God, you went to State Street. I'm so impressed. And then Barclays HSBC is very average. Mm. You know, it's a very B-grade set of brands. Um, and I'd like to think that Uber's a little bit of an A-grade brand. It certainly was for a while. But I didn't make that transition on the back of those things. I made the transition, I think, on the back of trying quite a few different things and, and seeing what worked. Plus, getting good at interviewing. And, you know, for example, that Barclays role, I said I hated my first job out of uni. I was there for a couple of years. The Barclays role was the big break for me to get away okay. from the first company I hated. I read three books to prepare for that interview because I just knew that I needed to get this yeah. right. So I read a, it was a retail banking strategy team, not very sexy, but I read a whole book on future digital banking. Yeah. And I read a whole book on how to answer case studies. And the second book I skimmed about how to answer case studies. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You know, yes, it's a bit of a grind, but... Get your basics right, so important. And the second thing, because I've been talking quite a long time about this and recruiting something close to my heart, but you did this and you did it very well. You stood out from the crowd by making a small effort. You emailed us and yeah. you said, hey, I put an application in, I just want you to know I'm really excited. Can I provide any further information? You guys look really cool. And the number of CVs you get is about 50X, mm. the number of people who take that one extra step. Mm and try and just show a little bit of enthusiasm. I had someone once who offered to bring me breakfast to an interview. Really? That sounds a bit naff, and it was a bit naff, and I did say no. But the principle? But the fact that they were like, I really want this job and I'm trying. Mm. And when I did my interview at State Street, not Did they get it? They didn't, unfortunately. (sighs) They actually were wildly under-leveled for the role. But they got an interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Through that raw enthusiasm that they brought in the application and in the preparation for the interview. Offer to buy everyone breakfast. <laughs> Obviously, it sounds like sucking up, and it is sucking up. And I'm not suggesting that you suck up. <laughs> but finding a way to, to stand out, like your application, just send an email that says, guys, I'm really excited about this role. I think I'm a great fit. I'd love to tell you about it. Mm-hmm. Here's a couple points. One of our other colleagues, who I won't name, but they, when they were applying for the role, they saw a role that wasn't quite a perfect fit advertised. Mm-hmm. And they just sent a great covering letter that said, this is my background. I think I'd be a really big asset to your company. Here's why. The role you're advertising for might be a touch junior, but I'd love to just have a chat. Yeah. And those kind of moments of enthusiasm go a hugely long way. So I think a lot of people don't know how to interview, don't know how to write CVs, 
just send a completely generic CV in to 10 people and then go, oh, I didn't get a job. Yeah. There's more there. There's more yeah. you can do. And I think my final, final thought, because again, I know I love talking about recruiting, is it's so obvious when you send a generic application. Do you know as a recruiter? You read so many applications that say stuff like, your company is famous for its standards and customer service. Mm. And you're like, you could be around about anyone. And I know mm. you haven't read anything about us because there's nothing particularly famous about State Street, Barclays, whatever. Yeah. Um, so these completely generic applications that come from people with, you know, they haven't bothered to personalize it. The CV's clunky. Like, get those fundamentals right. Yeah. And you have so many opportunities to get in the door with, with companies, even in a competitive landscape. Yeah. What's your opinion on um, outreaching through LinkedIn? Like, as you said, you had a chat with people. Does that, you know, move the works. needle? It yeah, absolutely it works. Because people want to work with people that want to work with them. Yeah. So if you send me a message on LinkedIn saying, I've looked into your company, I think it's super cool, I really want to come and work with you guys, can we have a chat? You're almost certainly going to be like, yeah. Mm. Now maybe okay, maybe you don't read it, maybe you don't have time, but that person comes across really well because they mm. want to work with you. Mm. And I'm not suggesting that the best way in life to to get a job is randomly spamming people, but there's so much more that you can do than putting a completely generic application in that you haven't tailored via LinkedIn and then going, oh, I didn't get a job. Yeah. I, for example, once wrote to the CEO of a startup called Voyage when I was between jobs. And I wrote to this guy and I put subject line, please can I, like, can I come and work for you? And I wrote 600 words about why I thought this company was super cool and here's my skill set, why I'm a fit. Mm. And he said, within a day, email me back saying, love this. CC in the COO who is leading on recruitment and you would be a good fit. Yeah. And I, the only thing that stopped me getting a job there was I couldn't get a visa sorted out to go to the US. Oh, so, oh wow. But that one email would have unlocked the door because basically oh we're actually hiring for this role in six months but we love the, your energy and we love what you like so maybe let's speed that up and they phoned me up and said we'd love you to come out to San Francisco and meet the team but then we had a chat like it fell apart but like I wouldn't have got that job yeah. if I hadn't written that email but how much energy was writing that email half a day's worth more than a day's worth far less for you <laughs> but an hour yeah. So I think for this, you know, to, to this question all comes around to the people who feel trapped and they feel yeah. lost in their career. Yeah. Show a little bit of hustle mm. and you'll be amazed by how many people respond positively to you. Mm. Hello all, I am super excited to announce that I've never had an original thought has its first sponsor. When the team at Twipes reached out asking if I wanted to collaborate, well, you know that I absolutely had to say yes because we're all about being sustainable, you know, doing our best to reduce our environmental impact and reduce our waste here on the pod. And Twipes helps us to do exactly that. They are truly biodegradable and flushable toilet wipes. Now I've used them for their intended purpose and I found them to be super. They're infused with aloe vera, so they're very fresh and honestly with it being around easter time anyone that knows me knows i eat like a five-year-old so my hands are always covered in chocolate and i can just use them and not have to worry about my impact on the planet because i just clean them up and they work super effectively so yeah they're really great honestly they vanish within three hours i think which again is just amazing the science behind is phenomenal so if you're interested in learning a bit more about them or if you would like a sweet 33 percent off 
for the time being which again incredible discounts got your whole third off there all you need to do is head over to twipes.uk forward slash becky to claim the discount so that's t-w-i-p-e-s dot uk forward slash becky with two c's b-e-double-c-y to get a whole third off so thanks again for the team at twipes for doing the amazing work and thank you for supporting the pod Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I want to go into this a little bit, a little bit more about this hustle then. How do you find or how do you manage your work-life balance? Because I know, you know, you see, you read so much about people that are incredibly burnt out, especially, you know, your generation. I think my generation's a bit different. I think we're pushing back a little bit. Um, But, okay, we can agree to disagree. But um, yeah, how did you find striking a good work-life balance? Do you feel like you've got there? I think work-life balance is a little bit of a myth in the sense that there's always going to be a positive correlation between success and effort. Mm. There's very few people that reach the top of any discipline without working pretty damn hard. Yeah. So the idea of balance always comes down to more of a trade-off between energy and, and the outcome you desire. But that being said, burnout's real and you can't just work infinitely hard and hope that you'll get the benefit. So... I think the couple of frameworks that, that are useful is one is to view work-life balance as a sort of average over time rather than a sort of equilibrium state. It's not about every single day I'm in perfect equilibrium. It is there will be periods of time when you need to lean into your work and periods of time when you need to lean away from your work. And I think that's natural. The other one that's the analogy who I can't remember who originated it, but the idea of having juggling balls and you have glass and rubber balls. And there are some things you just can't drop because they will break. And there are some things you can drop and they will bounce. Yeah. Um, and there will be more things on your plate than you can realistically do. So, for example, I'm doing a master's. I bought a house. My dad had a heart attack and I'm the COO here. Right. Horrible yeah. Q1. And I prioritize work because I'm really excited about what we're doing here at Comey and I want this team to be successful. Prioritize my family. And then when it came to a trade-out between the last bits of my time... Well, I just bought a house. I can't really not deal with that. Mm. So I called up the university and said, I need to defer my master's. Mm. And so I pushed that back until next year. Obviously, I wish I hadn't. want to get it done. But I recognize that the master's is something I can drop the ball on and recover. Yeah. Can't drop the ball on work. Or more accurately, I don't want to because I think what we're doing here is really exciting. Yeah. Can't drop the ball on being there for my dad. Of course. But I can drop the ball on, on the study. So I think... Even when you accept that there's kind of like a long-term balance, sometimes you lean in, sometimes you lean out, recognizing that all the things you juggle, there are things that are okay to drop and the things that aren't helps a lot as well. And it's prioritizing the things that really matter. How, how do you go about, I guess, the prioritizing, prioritizing, as you said, shifts over time. Um, but for people listening, what do you think are the fundamental glass, the glass balls? What should they definitely not drop? The things that matter to most people over time, in my experience, are people Mm. rather than things and money and experiences. If you have to pick between family and friends and another bauble for your CV, like a master's like I'm doing, or if you have to pick between family and money, and my dad's ill, it's quite expensive to get the train. My advice is almost always the things about the people that matter the most to you are the glass balls. And it's okay if the people that matter most to you are also colleagues mm-hmm. and also work. Like a startup is exciting because I care about the guys 
that we work with and I care mm. about you and I want us all to be happy so part of prioritising the people will sometimes mean work but when it comes to cash prestige physical goods mm. I would deprioritize those in favour of the of the relationships and maybe I'll give you one example one of my great regrets is I had a very close friend and she had an engagement party I forgot about mm. and morning of she texted me when you're getting here and I said oh god I forgot about it I, I said I'm not coming hadn't told her and I was tired and I looked at an Uber and it was out of London it was like 80 quid Uber mm. and I think you know what I'm tired it's 80 quid I'm just yeah. not going to do it our friendship never really recovered we've made we patched it up and whatever else but the fact that I ditched her engagement drinks without telling her last minute really upset her yeah. and the fact that I didn't make up for it and I didn't really make an effort because I thought oh it's not a big deal we never really made up and that is such a shame such a 80 quid on an Uber who cares mm. or a morning of a little bit of travel mm. who cares friends you know it's very easy particularly as you get older to just have them drift away mm. so I think yeah if you think about the glass balls the people really matter and most other stuff doesn't and how important do you think it is for people to care about who they work with I think again back to fall back on the philosophy training the word care does a huge amount of work in that sentence okay. and it's very um, ambiguous just so everyone listening Andrew does this with every single question that he ever gets asked yeah exactly don't ask me that question here's a different yeah, question that I will actually want to answer so I think it's really important to respect the people you work with it doesn't mean I want you to wake up in the night and go oh gosh what is X person in the office doing today and let me check in with everyone yeah it's not realistic it's probably not even very healthy mm. um, it's certainly lovely if you can have a group of friends at work and certainly in a few places I've worked I've had a group of friends and it's been lovely but I think the respect and enjoyment of their time and energy is really important. I think if you don't respect the people you work with, both their capability and their intentions, mm. you will end up quite tired and disengaged. Mm. Whereas if you respect them, even if you don't necessarily love them as people or mm. like them as people, but you kind of get that they are, their values are broadly... You know, you may disagree with them in certain ways, but they, they mostly try to treat people well. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe the example there would be like, they have the right intentions, even if they disagree on politics and, yeah, they, yeah. and they disagree on in, in, in implementation. If they are trying hard, if they're honest, those things will matter a lot. The best you can do is work in a place where you respect everyone, mm. even if you don't necessarily love everyone. You don't need to love the CEO, yeah. but you should respect them. Yeah. If you work in a place where you love everyone but you don't really respect them, it's actually very unhealthy. Okay. Um, because you'll just end up being a bunch of mates that never get shit done and you'll fall out over stuff because it'll be like, you should be doing this, it's your job. And I'll be like, oh, I thought we were friends, why are you having a go at me? So yeah, I think to answer your question, like, should you care? I think you need to frame that slightly in terms of what do we mean by care? And I think yeah. respect is probably the more yeah, useful word in that sentence. Okay, well, just to pivot slightly, obviously you are now COO of Comey, incredible achievements and well-deserved, if I do say so myself. Um, and I also think that you are an incredible leader and manager of people. I should go on and do this more often. <laughs> um, so what, 
obviously, you know, this has taken time, it's a lot of work. What sort of um, mistakes do you see other leaders make or maybe mistakes that you've made yourself as a leader slash manager um, and how can other people avoid them or, yeah, just your advice to, to anyone that's in a position where they're managing people? Yeah, I think that the, the advice really is that like as you become a manager and become more of a manager, mm. your job is to build a team and culture and it's not to direct workflow. Mm-hmm. And I think the problem you get is you'll get people that get very into day-to-day workflow type stuff. Like, what are you working on? Let's go through the documents together. Let's, like, have you done the thing that we spoke about? Let's go through your to-do list. And it doesn't really achieve very much, ultimately. Whereas, if you can build a high-performing team, hire the right people, motivate them, care about them, help them, coach them, grow them, you'll be way, way, way more effective. And you'll also be able to actually grow the sort of span of your impact because if I'm only able to be impactful when I'm literally looking at your to-do list, it's a very non-scalable thing. Whereas if I can bring great people into the team, get them excited, and they bring great people into the team, get them excited, and they bring, you know, that's exponential in terms of the impact you can have. So I think the mistake mm-hmm. is failing to prioritize the people okay. and the structure and the enthusiasm and the soft factors. I think the flip side of that advice is sometimes you as a manager have to do the hard things disciplinary stuff performance stuff firing people and a lot of people who are people focused will hate doing that you know because they want to be liked and yeah. they'll want everyone to be happy yeah. and what you'll find is that they will dodge doing some of those hard things but they will because of that they will let low performers hurt everybody else and so I think the difficult balancing act is to care about the people and really want the best for them, really want the best for the group, but to understand sometimes you have to make difficult decisions. And if you fail to do that, the a very small number of people with a bad attitude or low performance will become toxic for the group. Yeah. Do you think a, a chronic people pleaser can be a good manager? Only if they can overcome their tendency to be a people pleaser. Mm. Your job as a manager is not to be liked. Your job as a manager is to make sure that your people are looked after and effective. Now, if you have someone who, if every single person is a high performer, they can all like you and it can be a wonderful world. And their management is the easiest job in the world. But you will inevitably make a bad hire or you will have somebody transfer in or something will happen that will cause them to lose their desire to be where they're at and you need to deal with it now preferably you deal with it by helping them overcome whatever it is that's holding them back and actually helping them come back to being a happy productive person in that team but if you can't you need to deal with it either by laying holding a high bar and being like you are not at the bar and i will help you get to the bar but you are not at the bar or getting rid of that person and that does sound harsh and it sounds very transactional with human lives but you've got to recognize that oftentimes going above and beyond for an individual who isn't right is unfair on everybody else because everybody else tends to suffer for them and can also be unfair for that individual because they may know that they're struggling and they may be unhappy but be not making the move they need to make and i'm not saying that you fire people willy-nilly and you 
you know, you hire and you fire and you chuck people out. There's definitely a long-term process to go through before you get to that stage. But I've certainly seen managers make the biggest mistakes when they have failed to address organizational changes or individual performance issues and then let the sort of entire culture become poisoned by it. Mm. And on the flip of that, for someone maybe that's more my age and has a manager rather than is managing... How's that? What's the classic phrase like? How to manage your manager? How? What advice would you give to someone like me? Yeah, I, I think it's. I'll give you the advice that I probably have given you in one to ones. The advice is, you never want to surprise your manager. Mm-hmm. And so, generally speaking, I say to my reports that I will leave them alert to execute as long as I'm never surprised. And if stuff starts to surprise me, then I will show a greater interest. I would also say that there's a lot you can do as a direct report to show initiative and you know show hustle and, and make things happen. But again, you don't want to circumnavigate your manager. So I love a direct report who's like, hey, I think this is a good idea. You know, I've done a little bit of preliminary work. Can I work on this? Love it. Mm. Very tiring to have a direct report who doesn't do the things you're expecting because they're off showing initiative. So I think, you know, what does that all boil down to? It boils down to transparency. Don't surprise them. Make sure they're involved in the decision-making. Take ownership, but give them the authority to sign off on things. And I think probably the the, the thing that's not transparency-related is sort of a personal growth thing, is people can only really grow when they want to grow, right? As a manager, I can do coaching. I can do a lot of stuff, but I can't make people want to get better. So, you know, that person who comes to me and says... Can I get feedback? And then they take that feedback and they say, look, I've asked a couple of people and everyone kind of agrees and this is an area that I think we've identified and how do I get better at this? And then they go away and they try and get better at this. That person's going to go a really long way. Mm. Um, the person that can only... The person that needs very actively coached, like I have to sit you down and be like, look, you're an ops manager. You need to be more technical. Like you're not very good with data. This needs to be changed. Yeah. And they go, okay, fair enough. And then they come back six months later and they've done nothing. You know, mm-hmm. they have given them a couple of projects and they haven't really used that as an opportunity and they've never bothered to learn to use SQL or sheets or whatever. Like that person is is not gonna go far. So I think what have we talked our way around to? Probably one is transparency. Mm-hmm. Don't surprise me. Don't go off and do stuff that I don't know you're doing. Like make sure everybody understands across the org what's going on. And the second is that sort of like very self-created professional growth like help your manager identify the things you want to get better at help your manager understand what you are doing to get better at those things and then seek out coaching from either your manager or other people in the org who are who are good at it what if you just don't have a good relationship with your manager what if either your personalities are very different or you don't respect them or you feel as though they don't respect you how would you navigate that sort of relationship um, I think it comes all the way back to what we spoke about at the start, right? Which is like, what is the right kind of suffering? Yeah. If you have a manager that's just a bit insipid, mm-hmm. um, that can be okay. You know, not everyone can be an amazing leader and all of us who want to be amazing leaders work very hard at it and sometimes don't do it very well. So, you know, you can have those moments. And if you do, you need to think about, well, am I getting inspiration, coaching, development, learning from other people in the org or from the work that I'm doing? If so, that can still be fine. 
But if you're in a situation where you cross over into it being harassing or bullying or inappropriate behaviour, then that's a good opportunity to say, you know what, now is the time yeah. to draw a line under it, understand that you have options and leave. Mm-hmm. And I think companies that fail to build inclusive cultures and fail to build development cultures will lose good people yeah. and then they will fail. Yeah. Whereas hopefully companies that build inclusive but performance-oriented cultures will attract good people who mm. will in turn attract good people and then you'll have fewer insipid managers. Yeah, definitely. I like that it came full circle to the answer to your first question. Uh, the final question that I ask everyone, although I think I may know your answer to this one now, is what should people talk more about and what should people talk less about? I think that you might say people should talk more about how to get shit done and less about the ideas behind it. I don't know. Was that close? Maybe. I mean, I think, <laughs> I think obviously people should talk more about Star Trek. <laughs> no, I think... I think um, don't let me devalue the importance of ideas because obviously I have of course, of course. devalued the importance of ideas. Like, you know, someone who made a Uber for pens is never going to execute that business mm. to being a successful business. Mm. So there's a certain fundamental amount of good idea that's required. But I think when I look at companies that don't do very well, and I think probably expand that to organizations that don't do very well, it's because you get bogged down in this discussion of the theoretical. A lot of the time it's done with insufficient data. A lot of the time we're going, this is a great idea, no, that's a terrible idea. So a lot of time you can then go off and just get shit done and empower people and see what happens and then mm. most of the time even if stuff goes badly wrong it's fine mm. like you just deal with it and you move on and you learn something so I definitely think there is a fundamental amount of thinking that is useful so what's what's your answer to the question but I, I do you? think that yeah there is an importance to just like empowering people to go and do things yeah what is the answer to my question or what we should talk more about yeah and what should we talk less about just in general like as in if you could get the whole human race to talk more about something race. and talk less about something what would it be? I think maybe to sort of um, polemicise for a second politics public discourse mm. is very polarised mm. and there's a huge amount of people view everyone that disagrees with them as bad guy I know this is very trite observation and you know, a lot of people hear that and they go, yes, I quite agree, but unfortunately they are bad guys. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, congratulations on making a very banal observation. <laughs> but I do think that what I would love people to do more is disagree with good intent. Assume that the other person isn't motivated out of malice, but out of genuine concern, however ill-informed that genuine concern is. Try and find some centre ground and discuss whatever it is that is the, the, the topic of the day. You know, it is very tiring, it's exhausting emotionally to follow the news and see, you know, people arguing about whatever it is, um, taxes and trans rights and the Supreme Court and, you know, race in America and all of these divisive topics. And, and really all people are doing is just insulting each other back and, back and forth. Yeah. So maybe that is the, the answer to the question you asked me. We've talked around what is it, what is it. I think what I would like people to talk about more is to actually talk more. Mm. You know, most of our public spaces, whether they're news or whether they're social media, 
are not conversations, they're just broadcasts of opinion. And it's very tiring. I would love people to truly engage more. I think there was a great quote about, you know, the people who are seeking for truth are immeasurably better company or immeasurably to be preferred than those who believe they've already found it. Mm -hmm. And so maybe I, in answer to your question, what do I wish people would talk more about? I wish they would just earnestly talk rather than loudly broadcast because unfortunately I don't think it's getting us very far as a human race. In the office, maybe a slightly different question, I wish people would talk probably more about, there's no level of continuous feedback that is too much. Mm. So I do wish people would be transparent, not just about, hey, you need to do this more, mm. but also talk about themselves and say, look, I think I'm good at this. Am I good at this? Mm. Or how can I be better at this? Or, you know, I really struggle with this project. Can you tell me why you think I struggle? Or I think this is why I struggle. What do you think? Mm. And I think if you can get into that, earnest transparency maybe it comes back to what I mean about mm. like goodwilled discussion and um, if you can do that about yourself about other people then I actually think you can have quite a harmonious high performance culture I'm dramatics everyone can you believe oh my god I, I mean I completely agree although I do think that your last point requires uh, people to be a lot more introspective and, and probably honest with themselves and that can be quite confronting no one wants that mirror held up you know I also just think that there's we often give too much consequence to the negatives mm. because we often live in cultures where blame is apportioned and fought over who should be blamed and there are punishments for low performance and therefore it really does create a culture in which it's sensible yeah, of course. sort of objectively to hide your weaknesses and blame other mm. people and I think that's where management needs to be part of the process in a company of kind of celebrating like transparency and not punishing failure and embracing development and all those kind of things because if you can move people away from a blame culture people can actually be a bit more like guys I actually cocked this up I'm really sorry this is what I did wrong and mm -hmm. people go great now I've learned something Yeah. whereas I think for way too many cultures and I don't just mean work and organisation I mean look at politics today right you know mm -hmm. there's a huge amount of just like they did it we, no we didn't do it they yeah. did it yeah, yeah. you know I think that is very detrimental to the human race. So I think if we can maybe, within the four walls of Comey and our little team, if we can try and avoid a blame culture and we can try and encourage a celebration of people's desire to get better, we can't fix the human race. But we can hopefully create a little microcosm where people can be happy and grow together. I love that. And that's why you should all outreach to Andrew. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, if, if, you, if people want to reach you, are they free to do so? Where can they find you? Or are you not accepting inbounds? Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm certainly accepting inbounds. I don't think I expect to get an enormous number of inbounds generally. But Excuse me. This is my podcast we're talking about. Oh, Becky, I'm not, I'm not discrediting your audience. I'm discrediting my reach. But um, of course, I am available on LinkedIn where people can add me at, at will. And that's just Andrew Maddox. Uh, Andrew Maddox, yeah, at Comey. Fab. Well, thank you so much, Andrew. You are a delight. What a pleasure. Thank you all for joining me for another episode of I've Never Had an Original Thought. If you liked it, please rate it five stars because it motivates me to do more. If you liked the guest this week, let me know because then I can take that direction and put the energy in into making the podcast better for you. Um, and apart from that, if you want to reach out, you can find me at not an OG thought pod on Instagram. So that's at N O T A N O G thought pod. 
And yeah, if you stuck around this far, I promised a treat. So please enjoy um, this little sound recording when Andrew and I were testing the microphone. And Andrew gives us an incredible monologue from Shakespeare's Hamlet. Enjoy. Can you talk about something random so I can test the audio, please? To be or not to be. Is that how loud you're going to talk, do you think? I don't know. That is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them. To die. To sleep. To say that we sleep, that we end the heartache and thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. It is a consummation devoutly to be wished to die, to sleep, to sleep perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub, for who would bear the whips and scorns of time? And so forth. Oh my god, that, that, was, a, that was amazing! What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs> 